Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people, and I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. This podcast episode contains some graphic descriptions of murder and sexual assault. There are references to mental illness and to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. It's the 23rd of February 1938 and in Bishop's Court, the Anglican prelate's residence next door to Broughton School on the hill in Newcastle, the grounds are getting some tender loving care. Gardener Albert Dewsbury is working on landscaping part of the property that borders Church Street. He's using a gardening fork on a weedy patch about nine feet from the fence that marks the boundary with Broughton. Albert sees some cloth under a hydrangea and he picks it up. It's tied in a knot and a piece of tape has been twisted around it. When he unties this little bundle of material, it's empty and the creases are well marked. It's obviously weather-beaten and has been in the weeds for some time. Albert knows immediately what he's found. It's the missing part of the brassiere that was ripped from Dorothy May Everett when she was murdered next door late last November. This is a clue that the police have been looking for. I'm Michael Adams and this is the final part of the Forgotten Australia miniseries, The Vampire Murder. If you'd like to support the podcast and get early ad-free access, a show shout-out and exclusive bonus episodes, it'll cost you about the same as a cup of coffee per month. The Patreon link is in your show notes. The discovery of Dot's bra wasn't reported in the newspapers at the time it was found. 
But the man in charge of the investigation, Sydney CIB's Detective Sergeant Stanley McCarthy, and his counterpart, Newcastle homicide expert, Detective Sergeant William Orford, believed the find was significant. Bishop's Court had been thoroughly searched after Dot's body was found. The bra hadn't been there then. They were sure of it. The killer had clearly hidden it there afterwards. Given how close it was to Broughton, surely this had been Len Roberts, thinking he was in the clear after the initial investigation, smugly getting rid of the one bit of evidence that could hang him. Detective Sergeant McCarthy and Detective Sergeant Alford had their believers, not just in their police superiors, but in the New South Wales Attorney General. On Monday the 14th of March 1938, at the Central Criminal Court in Sydney, the Crown Prosecutor filed an ex officio indictment against Leonard William Roberts. Once it was filed, following procedure, his name was called three times outside the court. Len didn't answer the call, didn't appear, because he had no idea this was happening. But this non-appearance meant the Crown Prosecutor could now apply to Justice Maxwell for a bench warrant to be issued for his arrest. This legal move, coming two months after the coroner had said Len didn't have any case to answer, was unusual enough that newspapers had to run an explanation of an ex officio indictment. That explanation ran that the Attorney General had the power to put a person on trial if the Crown believed there was sufficient evidence, regardless of whether there had been a preliminary hearing and despite a magistrate or coroner previously declining to commit that person to trial. Detective Sergeant Stanley McCarthy was already on his way to Newcastle. There, he was joined by two local detectives and they went to Merriweather, arrested Len and hauled him back to the police station. In the Newcastle Police Court later that day, he was formally charged with the murder of Dorothy May Everett and remanded in custody overnight without bail until his committal hearing. The next day, he was ordered to stand trial and was again denied bail. The cops in the Crown knew Len Roberts was guilty of murdering Dot and they weren't going to let him get away with it. He'd remain in jail for the next six weeks. His trial started at the East Maitland Criminal Court on Tuesday the 26th of April with Justice Owen presiding. The inquest in January had not been an official prosecution of Len for Dot's murder. The police had presented witnesses and evidence believing they'd be sufficient to convince the coroner to conclude there was a case against him. Now, in this court in Maitland, up on a hill amid pine trees, one of the Crown's most eminent barristers, Mr W. W. Monaghan, King's Counsel, would fit the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together for the jury. In his opening address, Mr Monaghan said the evidence was circumstantial, but it was strong and all the stronger when considered in the context of all the lies the accused had told. The verdict of guilty was inevitable. Quote, it is the only rational one. Len's movements on the night of Dot's death weren't contested, but, quote, he has given three or four different accounts, some obviously untrue and all more or less conflicting as to what happened on the next day. The Crown contended and witnesses said... Len had, in the two visits to Dot's body, not bent down or touched her. He hadn't lifted the corsets over her face. He hadn't needed to. 
He knew who it was. He'd killed her. And when he initially said he didn't know who it was or that it might be Dot, he'd been faking ignorance. Mr Monaghan related the evidence of the cigarettes and how they matched the brand and rolling papers that Len used. Then, of course, there were the bite marks on Dorothy's body. Mr Monaghan explained that these abrasions had been caused by upper dentures and pressure from lower gums toughened by years of use chomping food. Len Roberts had said at the inquest he'd worn upper dentures for nine years but didn't wear lower ones because they made it difficult to eat and to talk. After a two-hour opening address, Mr Monaghan called the first Crown witness. Most of those who testified gave very similar evidence to what they had at the inquest, but there were significant differences. In the coroner's court, Len had been represented by a solicitor. Now, he had an eminent defence barrister, Brian Clancy, King's counsel, and he would use any opening to try to establish reasonable doubt. Dr Collier, who'd done the bite tests on Len in the police station at Newcastle, said that the accused had no natural teeth and the bite marks on Dot were consistent with someone who wore upper dentures only. Yet Mr Clancy elicited from him the opinion that the bites could also have been made by a man with a full set of teeth. At the inquest, the Crown's dental expert, Dr Alec Allen, had asserted that that wasn't possible. Dr Collier again explained for the jury about getting Len to bite an apple and try to bite the chest of morgue keeper Sergeant Stephen Pender. But under questioning, the doctor revealed that Len hadn't been able to mark a whole peeled apple and had only succeeded in leaving an impression when it was cut in half. He had, as the inquest had heard, been unable to leave any sort of bite mark on the morgue keeper's chest. The experiment Dr. Collier said, had told him nothing in terms of the bites on Dot. Mr. Clancy asked of the experiment, did Dr. Collier believe that Len had been making a real attempt to bite? The doctor responded, quote, There was nothing to indicate that the attempt was not genuine. The lower lip kept slipping over the lower jaw. Dot's left nipple had been bitten off. Mr. Clancy wanted to know whether this was consistent with a man possessing a full set of teeth. Dr. Collier admitted it was possible. Dr. Collier had previously made much of the murderer's strength. At the inquest, he testified he put Len to the test and found him to be very strong. But Mr. Clancy wanted to know, was he really exceptional? Quote, Do you agree there would be many men in this court as strong as the accused? Dr. Collier, yes, probably stronger. So there is nothing exceptional about that. The doctor responded, He is a slim and slightly built man. I would not say that the accused is exceptionally strong. Under questioning, Dr. Collier said he believed the crime had been committed by a sexual pervert. Mr. Clancy asked, Was it a particular type of pervert? The witness asked, What do you mean? Mr. Clancy said, The type known as a cunny linguist. Dr. Collier said, Yes. It's very doubtful that Mr. Clancy made that mistake. More likely, the Maitland Mercury's man did his best with an unfamiliar word, and the editor allowed it to be published because he didn't know what it meant. Certainly, this line of testimony did not appear in any other newspaper. On the second day of the trial, Dot's boyfriend, Tom Donegan, testified. He now said that Dot had told him she'd been attacked on the Church Park walk. 
Mr. Clancy, did the girl tell you that she'd been followed up the zigzag steps by a man who had attempted to molest her? Tom, yes. This change in Tom's testimony didn't seem to be indicative of anything other than him having misremembered what Dot had told him. Yet similar discrepancies in Len's testimony had been held up as evidence of him being a murderer. Mall keeper Sergeant Stephen Pender told the court that in his 16 years in the job, he'd assisted at more than 2,000 post-mortems. He'd examined Dot's body. When Mr Monaghan asked Sergeant Pender to compare the chin bite mark with what he knew of Len's teeth, Mr Clancy objected saying that the policeman was not a dental expert, but the judge ruled Sergeant Pender's opinion was admissible. He expressed the opinion that the half-moon-shaped mark on Everett's chin could have been caused by a mouth in the same condition as Roberts's. Mr Clancy wanted to know when Sergeant Pender had started to make a study of bites. Quote, I have seen bites on bodies that have come into the morgue over a period of years. I suppose I have seen three or four. Under questioning, it turned out it had been two, and the most recent one had been five or six years ago. Other than that, Sergeant Pender's expertise was limited to what he'd read or said he'd read in textbooks. Sergeant Pender had to admit that he'd never given evidence about bite marks in a criminal trial, and since the inquest, he'd been studying up using books supplied by Dr. Collier. Sergeant Pender said that he didn't consider himself an expert. In response to a leading question from Mr. Monaghan, Sergeant Pender made a startling claim about Len's bite test on his chest. Quote, I think that it was simulated. There was no pressure at all used. The accused said he could not get a hold of me with his mouth. Len might not have been able to get hold of Sergeant Pender, but Mr. Clancy had him and he wasn't letting go. What he wanted to know was when Sergeant Pender had first made this claim about Len faking it. He replied, quote, I was asked at the time of the test. I think one of the police asked me. But Mr. Clancy said, hadn't Dr. Collier been there watching carefully? Yes. Mr. Collier, did you say in the presence of the doctor or anyone else that he was not trying to bite you? No. How long were you in the doctor's company that day? At the outside, 10 minutes? Why hadn't Sergeant Pender testified about the accused faking the bite test during the inquest? Sergeant Pender said he didn't think his evidence was material. Mr. Clancy, in December, you knew that in the experiment, he made a simulated attempt to bite you. Sergeant Pender answered, yes. Mr. Clancy, and that would be a most important matter, will you agree, in a case like this? Justice Owen wouldn't allow that question to be asked in that form because a coronial inquiry was only into the cause of death, not a criminal trial. That was quite the ruling, given how much against Len Roberts had been introduced at the inquest. Mr. Clancy tried again, asking Sergeant Pender, Did you think it was an important matter for the coroner to know that this man made only a false attempt to bite you? Justice Owen interrupted again, asking, How is that material? It was hard to see how the judge couldn't see how it was material. To this frustrating intervention, Mr. Clancy responded, quote, Now, in the 59th minute of the 11th hour, Your Honour, this witness says the accused went through a sham in attempting to bite him. The implication was clear. Sergeant Pender was now doing his best to see Len convicted. The judge did not direct Sergeant Pender to answer. But the damage had already been done. 
it was hard to see how this man's evidence could be considered reliable. Former Broughton headmaster Reverend Futrell and his wife Edith had come up from their new posting at Ballarat to give evidence. What he had to say was pretty much a repeat of his testimony at the start of the inquest. But Mrs Futrell's evidence would now be pivotal. Remembering that morning, she told the court that outside the front door, she'd said, Len, what is it over there? Go and see. Len, she said, hadn't said anything. He'd walked straight down to the shape and then he'd returned. Mrs Futrell said she did not see him touch anything. Quote, I saw him walk over to where it was, look at it and then come straight back. Mr Clancy asked again, did he touch anything? She answered, I did not see. This wasn't the same as what she'd said before. Previously, Mrs Futrell had said she hadn't taken her eyes off Len and he'd been down and back in a few moments. What wasn't raised at the inquest, nor in the court trial, was how easy it was to test this claim of the time it had taken. By the Crown's own measurements, it was about 122 feet from the front steps of the school to Dorothy's head. So that was a 244-foot round trip, some 70 metres, the second half back up a moderate hill. Maybe Len had hurried out of urgency. Maybe he'd held back out of dread. But at an average walking pace, it would have taken him about 45 seconds. Mr Clancy asked Mrs Futrell, quote, Do you remember discussing it with Mrs Geary the cook later in the day? Yes, she did. Did Mrs Geary say, He told us he had lifted something off the face? Mrs Futrell, yes. Mr Clancy, did you say, I did not see that, but it might have happened when I was watching the expressions on the boys' faces? Mrs. Futrell, yes. Mr. Clancy pressed, was your attention distracted by your anxiety as to the effect of the body on the schoolboys? Mrs. Futrell, yes, I remember distinctly watching the expression on their faces to see whether they knew anything. Mr. Clancy, and could Roberts have touched the body while your attention was distracted? Yes. Mrs. Futrell had taken her eyes off Len Roberts. She couldn't be sure for how long but it was long enough for him to have lifted the corsets and seen the face and known for sure that it was Dot. Francis Walker, nine-year-old schoolboy, returned as a witness and peered over the box. The judge asked if he went to church. He said no, but he went to Sunday school. Did Francis know what happened to liars? Yes, he said, they were punished. Young Francis was then sworn in to tell the truth. He related what had happened on the Sunday morning. After alerting the accused to the accessories on the grass, Francis had gone up to the house to deliver his papers. Then it started walking around the house to the tennis court area to deliver Len's paper to his room. As the Newcastle Sun reported, quote, When he reached the end of the path, he saw Roberts talking to some women. Young Francis now told the jury, quote, When I returned, I saw Roberts looking down at a lady lying on the ground. Roberts did not touch anything but Francis had been around the back of the house for perhaps a minute. He, too, didn't have eyes on Len during the crucial moments. A central part of the police's case had been based on Mrs Futrell and Francis Walker both saying that Len had not, on his return to the body, bent down, lifted the corsets and been able to see it was Dot. The police's contention was he'd killed Dot, so he had no need to do that. Now, 
Under cross-examination, the testimony of both witnesses didn't support that conclusion. Was it a case of the witnesses just giving inadequate testimony at the inquest? That was certainly a possibility, but it also raised the question, why hadn't the police questioned them more thoroughly? Then there was this. It's long been said that out of the mouths of babes come some wise words, but what young Francis Walker said next really seemed to drop the cops in it. Just last Sunday, he said four policemen, including Detective Sergeant McCarthy and Detective Sergeant Alford, had taken him around Broughton School to tell him all the things he'd forgotten. If this was an attempt to shape his evidence, it hadn't worked out in their favour. Testifying, Mrs Geary reiterated that at breakfast, Len had said he'd lifted the thing from the face and then seen it was Dot. Detective Sergeant Patterson, who'd first interviewed Len on the Sunday night, testified the accused had told him, quote, A newsboy drew my attention to a lady's handbag lying on the grass. I looked across and saw a body. I lifted some clothing from the face and saw it was Dot. Len had said he'd run or walk to Mrs Futrell and said, It must be Dot. She'd said, Go look. Detective Sergeant Patterson said, Len told him, quote, I did so and on returning said, Yes, it is Dot. She is naked. Give me a sheet. Detective Sergeant Patterson's inquest testimony hadn't mentioned anything about Len lifting the corset. So had he made a mistake then or now? This was one of the vital questions. Detective Sergeant Patterson agreed it was difficult to remember what had been said at the time. Despite this, Mr Clancy wanted Detective Sergeant Patterson to be clear. He asked him, was the last thing you said in your evidence, quote, At the time Roberts was speaking to me, he said, I went across to the body and raised some clothing from the face and saw it was Dot. Yes. As the Newcastle Morning Herald reported, quote, Under further cross-examination, witness said that Roberts told him this at the time when he was first speaking to him. Len's alleged statement from the 7th of December was tendered. Mr Clancy objected to some portions being read, quote, These have no evidentiary value and are pregnant with prejudice. Your honour might exercise your discretion, especially when the charge against this man is so grave. The possible consequences will be so final. Justice Owen agreed and only some of the statement would be allowed. This included that Len, prior to November 1937, had gone out with maid Ethel Herbert, no longer deemed Miss X because, significantly, she wasn't being called as a trial witness, despite her evidence having been deemed crucial at the inquest, her testimony comprising six of the 26 sitting hours of the proceedings. Len's alleged lies and contradictions from the statement were read to the jury. Detective Sergeant Stanley McCarthy said he'd gotten to Newcastle from Sydney that Sunday night. He'd interviewed Len, who then he said was not under suspicion. The accused had supposedly told him that he did not examine the body. Asked why not, Len had then supposedly changed his story, quote, I did examine the body. Detective Sergeant McCarthy said he'd asked him, then you must have known it was Dot. Len had replied, I only thought it was. For the jury, the detective related the interview on the 7th of December. Among other things, Len had denied the cigarette evidence and disputed their distorted claims about when the newsboy had seen him standing over the body. 
In regard to the cigarettes, Detective Sergeant McCarthy had to admit that Log Cabin was a widely sold brand of tobacco. Indeed it was, accounting for perhaps half of roll-your-own sales. The zigzag papers were even more common, with a 60% market share. Len had denied having a cigarette at the spot it had been found, at the time of the murder. But it was possible, as a heavy smoker, he'd tossed away a cigarette there at another time recently. Mr Clancy asked Detective Sergeant McCarthy if he remembered the last place he'd thrown away a cigarette butt. The officer had to say that he couldn't. The detective said that Len had refused to sign the statement on the 15th of December, even though he'd been given the chance to correct mistakes. He said that Len had not been detained against his will or refused legal counsel. Detective Sergeant McCarthy said he'd had a constable lay in the spot where Dot had been found and this man could plainly be seen from the veranda. Len had to have seen it before the paper boy arrived. Yet, why was Len supposed to have spotted Dot when no one else had been able to make her out clearly? Mrs. Futrell and Jean Lamb had only spotted the shape from upstairs. Mrs. Futrell had said it was just a mere outline from the front door. Francis the newsboy had come in and gone up the steps and he hadn't seen it. Later, when he knew where the body was, he had to stand on tiptoes to get a glimpse. Reverend Futrell, the teacher, Mr. Sherlock and boys going to the chapel hadn't seen it from up at the house or on the upper path. Detective Sergeant McCarthy told the court he thought he'd interviewed most Broughton residents before he'd interrogated Len on the 7th of December. But he had to admit at that time he had still not spoken to Eileen Crockett. So he didn't know she'd arrived home at 10.12am and had not seen Dot's accessories then, the same as what Len had claimed. At the very least, Detective Sergeant McCarthy's failure to follow up with her was bad policing. It also meant that he didn't know she'd left the grounds early on the morning of the 28th of November. She'd gone off the veranda, down the front steps, down the grounds, out the front gate, and she hadn't seen the body or the accessories except the handkerchief. If Eileen hadn't seen them in broad daylight going so close to them, why was Len missing the same things from further up the grounds, evidence he'd actually known they were there, was the murderer, and had been faking ignorance? By the time Detective Sergeant McCarthy had interviewed Eileen, he'd already decided that Len was the prime suspect. Further, Detective Sergeant McCarthy, now in court, had to admit he'd known that there were others, such as the boys, who'd been around the place that morning and none of them had seen the body either. Detective Sergeant McCarthy's admissions made it clear that the police had not thoroughly interviewed everyone at the school about their movements. Further, under cross-examination, it became clear that Detective Sergeant McCarthy had jumped to some early conclusions about Len on the 7th of December. Quote, You knew the paper boy called about the same time every Sunday. Did you want the boy to discover the handbag and other things? He claimed that Len hadn't replied to this, and again, that was hard to credit. The detective now claimed that Len had said in reply to a question, Well, I did go over and examine the body before Mrs. Futrell spoke to me. Yet, as Mr. Clancy pointed out, in the coroner's court, Detective Sergeant McCarthy had said Len had told him he'd gone over and seen the body. Detective Sergeant McCarthy admitted that this was so. Mr. Clancy asked, Do you appreciate that this man's life might be decided by the difference between see and examine? Detective Sergeant McCarthy answered, I have no desire to alter my words. 
Detective Sergeant William Orford gave evidence about the grass impressions, that there'd been shoe marks in the gravel near the grass, about Len denying that he'd ever asked Dorothy Everett out, and about him refusing to sign his statement, among other things. But Detective Sergeant Orford also related having a conversation with Detective Sergeant Patterson on Sunday the 28th, in Len's presence, in which his colleague had said Len had told him he'd gone over to the body and lifted some clothing from the face. Mr. Clancy honed in, quote, You appreciate that whether Roberts lifted up the material over the face is a vital matter. Detective Sergeant Alford said, Yes. It is equally as vital when he lifted it. Yes. Have you ever given this evidence before? No, at the inquest it was given by others, and I was not asked by the prosecutor, Sergeant Magnay. You omitted to give this vital evidence at the inquest? I did not. Sergeant Magnay instructed me to relate what I said to the accused, and Detective Sergeant Patterson did the same. Are you telling us that Sergeant Magnay told you that he would not ask you about this particular piece of evidence? Detective Sergeant Alford said yes, but there was a reason. Mr Clancy said he didn't care what the reason was. But in cross-examination, Mr. Monaghan did. Quote, What did Sergeant Magnay tell you at the inquest? Detective Sergeant Alford replied, Quote, He said to me, I am going to cut you short, as I know what verdict the coroner is going to return, and we don't want to waste time. As we've heard, the inquest, thanks to the police's theories, had been the longest in Newcastle's history, stretching to five days. Detective Sergeant Alford had been the last witness. Len had been in the box for three hours. Miss X had been in there for six. Even if Sergeant Magnay thought he knew the coroner was going to conclude there was no case, he already had Detective Sergeant Alford in the witness box. But Sergeant Magnay hadn't asked the question of Detective Sergeant Alford or of Detective Sergeant Patterson because he didn't want an answer that was contrary to the police's theories. Again, it looked like the police had manipulated and omitted to strengthen the case against Len Roberts. On Friday, the 29th of April, the fourth day of the trial, Len made a statement from the dock proclaiming his innocence, saying he'd told everything he knew in hours and hours of interviews and that the police had changed his words. Quote, When I noticed how they distorted my statement and altered it, I said I could not sign it. Then they detained him and denied him legal representation. Detective Sergeant Alford was recalled and he denied all of these allegations. Next in the witness box was dentist Dr. Alec Allen. He told the court that from photos he'd determined that the marks on Dorothy were bites. But now he said they could have, as the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, been caused by a person with no teeth in the lower jaw and in the upper jaw either a full artificial denture or several natural teeth and a partial denture or several natural teeth and no denture. Mr Clancy reminded Dr Allen that at the inquest he'd sworn the marks had been made by someone with two upper teeth in the left-hand corner of his mouth. Mr Clancy asked, Did you say, the person who committed this may have had teeth at the top, but he was not wearing them? Yes, he had. Had he also said, quote, But he certainly had those two natural teeth. Dr Allen said, Yes, that's what he'd said. So, what had changed? Why had Dr. Allen just amended that opinion to include that the marks could have been left by someone who had in the upper jaw a full artificial denture that was no natural teeth? 
Mr. Clancy gave voice to his suspicions. Quote, when were you told that the accused had no natural teeth? Dr. Allen replied, I was told just before I went into the witness box. Mr. Clancy, who told you? Dr. Allen, Detective Sergeant Alford. Mr. Clancy asked Dr. Allen to go and examine Len's mouth. He confirmed that the accused had no natural teeth. Justice Owen wanted to know, how do you tell the difference between the marks of natural and artificial teeth? Dr. Allen said, you would expect a very much more depressed mark by a natural tooth than by an artificial tooth. Dr. Allen now told the court there was almost no way the marks in the photo could have been made by a man with no teeth sucking on flesh. At the inquest, Len's solicitor had intimated that Dr. Allen had changed his testimony to suit the police. But it appeared that hadn't been the case. He'd reported what he'd seen, as he'd said at the time. And that was, the marks on Dot's body had been made by two natural teeth. It had only been now, at the trial, that Detective Sergeant Alford had apparently tried to sway his judgment. It's not clear why Len's solicitor at the inquest hadn't made it clear that his client had no natural teeth. Perhaps he felt confident enough in his demolition of Dr. Allen's supposed expertise. He might have also thought it was wise to keep this defence in reserve, able to be used if the matter ever went to trial. But the police may have realised the problem with Dr. Allen's evidence early on. On the 8th of December 1937, it had been announced they were consulting with a dentist, hoping he could tell them something about the bite marks. But the very next day, it had been reported that this had proved to be a dead end because no teeth marks had been left on Dot. Had they changed their tune because they now had Len as their main suspect and he had no teeth? During the inquest, the police prosecutor had focused on the fact that Len had no lower teeth more than on the fact that Dr. Allen was testifying there'd been two natural tooth marks. And in his opening address, Mr. Monaghan had related how the abrasions on Dot had been caused by upper dentures and pressure from lower gums. He hadn't mentioned tooth marks at all either. Dr. Allen's evidence through these contradictions had now been rendered worthless. And for the record, forensic bite analysis, though a staple of crime fiction, is now considered to be junk science in terms of identifying a perpetrator. If it has any worth, it's in ruling people out. Dr. Allen, who'd never testified before as a dental expert, would seemingly never testify again in that capacity. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On Friday, the 29th of April, five months and one day after Dot had been found dead, closing addresses began. Mr. Clancy was eloquent, forceful, and passionate. He reiterated the holes in the timeline in which someone else might have committed the murder. Dot had, it was accepted, been accosted about two weeks earlier by a stranger and said she was afraid of someone. 
Mr Clancy pointed to the significant alterations between evidence given at the inquest and at the trial. Mr Clancy said, The weaving of circumstantial evidence around a man may lead to a terrible miscarriage of justice. If it were a crime punishable only by imprisonment, it would be bad enough. But when the crime is punishable by death, it is vital. Of the police's distortions, he said, Have they no conscience? Alford tells this witness that the accused has no teeth in the upper jaw. He sows the seed. Why should he do that? Mr Clancy said there had to be a clearing up of this, that the police had to find the real murderer, the man with the natural teeth. Mr Clancy said that the dentist's evidence was direct proof of his client's innocence, that the only conclusion was that the man who committed the crime was the man described by the expert when he'd been allowed to be an impartial witness and hadn't been influenced by police whisperings. Quote, that is the very danger of circumstantial evidence. Pick the man and make the facts fit him. Those facts would have fitted any man about the grounds that morning. He said wherever changes had been made, at least from the police and their chief witnesses, they'd gone against his client. Further, police had waited eight days before typing up Len's statement and then allegedly made significant distortions to what he'd said. Mr Clancy said, I say deliberately to you that an examination of the police evidence at the coroner's inquiry and here fills one with foreboding. When you have considered it with me, I think that I am right in believing you will think, thank God, I have not been in their hands. You have heard the police that a clear imprint of the man's shoe was found in the earth at the foot of the place where the couple were sitting that the police were in the accused's room and about the premises, and that the accused was ready to comply with any request that they made to him. Why, with experienced police, was not an attempt made to provide you with a piece of really important evidence to see if the accused's shoes fitted with the imprint beside the woman's? That, if it were not done, is a comment on the fact that these men are not detectives, they are interrogators. Their skill lies not in detecting, but in getting hold of a man whom they say is a suspect, then questioning him. There was cogent evidence, something that a skilled man would immediately attach importance to. But there is deathly silence about it. He went on, The police force as a whole is a magnificent force, but in all bodies you will find some who are not so good. This is not just enthusiasm in a job. It is a marked and definite alteration of testimony on vital matters for the whole purpose of making the case blacker against this unfortunate man. Mr Clancy said that the jury had all the reasonable doubt it needed to acquit Len Roberts. In his closing, Mr Monaghan said the evidence pointed to one man and one man only, the accused. Why hadn't Schumacher been compared with the accused's? because unfortunately, at first, Len had not been a suspect. This, of course, didn't explain why a mould hadn't been taken that could have easily been compared with his footwear on the 7th of December and afterwards, or why there was no record of police searching his clothes for bloodstains or asking if he'd deviated from his usual laundry pattern or disposed of any garments or shoes. Nevertheless, continuing, Mr Monaghan said the accumulation of circumstantial evidence was overwhelming. Len had been there around the time Dot had died. He was known to her, and he had teeth that fit the marks. Most damningly, Len had lied and lied about his relations with women at the school. 
Further, the bra in Bishop's Court was found in a spot that had been previously searched. Mr. Monaghan advanced the theory that this bra had been used by Len to wrap the watch he'd stolen from Dorothy's body. Once he'd hidden that stolen item someplace else, he'd tossed the bra over the fence. That seemed a peculiar idea. If Len was the killer and he'd stolen the wristlet watch, why wouldn't he have just put it in his pocket? Why would Len not have just buried the bra in the garbage or burnt it in the incinerator rather than hiding it somewhere where one day it'd turn up and point to him? What seemed more likely was that the killer had dropped that part of the bra while fleeing through Bishop's Court after killing Dot. As for the police not finding it, well, perhaps their search was as slipshod as other parts of their investigation had been. Mr. Monaghan utterly rejected Mr. Clancy's attacks on the police, saying they were unfair and unjustified. It had been Len Roberts who'd lied to them, and then he'd lied about them twisting his statement and preventing him from leaving the police station. He'd done this to try to discredit their overwhelming evidence against him. Mr. Monaghan said there was only one rational verdict the jury could reach. Leonard William Roberts was guilty of murder. His Honour Justice Owen reminded the jury the onus of proof was on the Crown, but also told them circumstantial evidence was often relied upon in such cases. If they thought the accused was lying, they should discredit all his statements. Yet, they must keep in mind that being a liar didn't necessarily make a man a murderer. Even though it was now the late afternoon of the fourth day of the trial, his Honour was reluctant to adjourn the court and asked the jury to retire and consider its verdict. They went to their room to deliberate around 6.15pm. Two hours later, the jury was back. They didn't have a verdict, but they were seeking clarification from Justice Owen on some minor points. Just after the jury received his counsel and returned to their room, while Len Roberts sat in the dock awaiting his fate, the court lights went out, and the whole building was suddenly plunged into darkness. Was this some of the accused supporters trying to spring him from custody? Constables and detectives rushed to the dock to surround Len. Matches were struck, a sheriff groped his way to the switchbox to replace a fuse. There were a few remarks and laughs from the public gallery. When a court officer tripped over a chair, the crowd burst into hysterics. Angry detectives cleared the courtroom by matchlight locking the doors so the public couldn't then return. When the lights came back on, Len was still surrounded by a wall of police. He'd taken the opportunity to light a cigarette, puffing away on what might be his last smoke as a free man on the way to the gallows. During this blackout, in the jury room, the 12 men, good and true, had continued their deliberations by the light of a hurricane lamp and the glow of a radiator. Finally, close to 9.30, they had a verdict. At 9.35, the foreman stood up in court. For the murder of Dorothy May Everett, the jury had found Leonard William Roberts not guilty. The public gallery burst into cheers. Everything considered, the Daily Telegraph reported an astounding reaction from one spectator. Quote, Miss X, who figured in the coroner's inquiry, broke down at the verdict. The paper reported her saying, Oh, I'm so happy, I don't know what to say. Other young women, whose names had been freely mentioned in trial evidence, grabbed hands with excitement. A crowd surged around the dock as it was unlocked and Len walked out. 
Len and his legal defenders hurried away. He soon released a statement via them saying, If it had not been for the vigour and ability of my counsel and the assistance of my solicitor, I might have been convicted on a grave miscarriage of justice. Hoping for more from Len, a crowd waited outside the court until late in the night, but they were disappointed because he didn't come out. The police and the Crown had tried and failed to prove that Len had killed Dot Everett. Truth reminded readers, quote, Somewhere among his unsuspecting fellows slinks, undetected, the vampire killer. Just over two weeks before the not guilty verdict, Detective Sergeant Stanley McCarthy of Sydney CIB, who'd led the investigation, was promoted to Detective Inspector. His career really was on the fast track. By 1941, he was second in charge of the CIB, and he set a record by being promoted four times in 1944 alone. Soon after, he was Metropolitan Superintendent and then Deputy New South Wales Police Commissioner. When Stanley McCarthy retired in 1950 due to ill health, he was Acting New South Wales Commissioner. Detective Sergeant William Alford was soon transferred from Newcastle back to Sydney CIB. He then served at Goulburn, was promoted to Inspector, was transferred back to the city, was second in charge of the Phillip Street and North Sydney Police before seeing out his career as Superintendent at Parks. Dot's boyfriend, Tom Donegan, also soon moved back to Sydney, where he lived with his widowed mother in Lilyfield and kept on working as an electrical fitter. According to electoral rolls found at Ancestry.com.au, Tom lived in this family home for almost 40 years. He died in 1978, aged 76. According to the electoral rolls and the Sydney Morning Herald death notice, Tom hadn't married. The day after the not guilty verdict set him free, Len gave an interview to Smith's Weekly, the paper running the story on its front page. He was staying in Merriweather with his friends, Mr. and Mrs. Spilling, who he'd known for almost 10 years and who, with other friends, had loaned him the money to pay his legal bills. Now Len wanted to make sure the world knew he was grateful for all the support and that he intended to pay any money loaned to him back. Len said he owed everything to Mr. Clancy. That man had saved his life. Len was also thankful for the women who'd stood by him. Quote, I have had several girlfriends who have had absolute faith in me all through. Among them, he said, Joan Hill had been the rock. Len, it was wonderful of her, a tremendous test of friendship. I hated to see her mixed up in this. She's so staunch. Mr. and Mrs. Futrell also had been very good to him, and they'd come to see him last night after the acquittal. Now, the rest of his life began, but Len was worried what that would be like. Quote, I wonder if people will let me go on living in Newcastle. I intend to stay in the Newcastle district if I possibly can. My friends are here. I know that to be accused is to be guilty in the eyes of the majority, but I want to face this out. I shall change neither my name nor my identity. Of course, I will have to get a job, but will anybody employ me? I know it won't be easy looking for a job. Len went on. I can understand that a man who has been charged with murder, and such a terrible murder, in spite of his acquittal, can hardly be just an ordinary man. It is terrible to think of the jokes and sneers and frank horror of the ordinary people. But, Len said, he was just an ordinary man. An ordinary man who recounted the shame of being held in jail for six weeks. Of the shame of every day during the trial being searched, 
handcuffed and led up into the dock for the whole world to glare at him. For most of the trial, Len said he'd believed he'd be acquitted, but he'd lost hope just after the jury came back for the first time, clearly troubled by something, and then the lights had gone out. Len had been plunged into darkness and into emotional turmoil. Quote, The police closed in on me. I didn't want to escape. I wanted to be cleared of this hideous crime. Len said that darkness had been horrible. Before the police cleared the court, he'd heard people joking and laughing and betting on whether he'd be convicted and thus go to the gallows. Then Len was back in the light. Soon after that, the jury returned with the verdict. It was hard to believe. He was free. Len went on, I am innocent of this crime, but acquittal is not enough to clear my name. I want to be here in the Newcastle district when the murderer of Dot Everett is found. Dot's killer was never identified. In the very early days of the investigation, a detective had promised that police would never stop looking for Dorothy's killer, that this case was as important, perhaps more important, than the pyjama girl because the maniac might strike again. Yet, by 1939, Dot was mentioned only in passing in summary news stories of unsolved homicides in New South Wales. Did the police keep investigating on the quiet? It really doesn't seem so. Maybe, despite how Detective Sergeant McCarthy and Detective Sergeant Alford had bolstered their case against Len Roberts with dodgy practices and evidence, they really had thought he'd been guilty, and continuing the search was pointless. Does a man like the one who killed Dot Everett strike only once, and then put back on the mask of sanity and hide behind it for the rest of his life? Perhaps. There were unsolved sex strangling murders in Sydney and New South Wales before Dot Everett, and there'd be others to follow. But none on record involved the sort of bites and assaults that had been inflicted on her. Could detectives have been wrong about that patch of grass? Maybe Dot Stalker had come back and waited, or it could have been some stranger lurking. Either way, perhaps he did surprise her from the shadows before she could scream rendering her stunned or unconscious and setting her on the grass while he took off her gloves and bangle and set aside her bag. Realising he needed more darkness for his purpose, he could have carried her to the spot where she'd been found. The cigarette, common brand of tobacco and paper, might have been dropped there by Len, by a teacher, by a schoolboy who didn't want to get busted for smoking, or it could have been dropped there by one of those strangers who'd been seen walking in and walking out of the grounds over the past few months. The attacker could have been a sailor who'd been off for distant shores a day later. What's obvious is that the investigation and the prosecution were sorely lacking. From the police's failure to provide photos of Dot to the public early on, and leaving a crucial statement untyped and unsigned for more than a week, to their failure to interview all potential witnesses and suspects in timely fashion while stacking the deck against their preferred suspect, it's hard not to conclude the chance to collect valuable clues and information was hopelessly squandered. There is, for instance, no mention I've found of the teachers or the older boarding boys being interviewed by the police. Not to say they were suspects, but like Len, they were on the premises that night and any one of them could have been out in the grounds. Beyond that, did they have any information at all that might have been of assistance? It really doesn't seem that the police followed them up. 
just as they didn't follow up on Eileen Crockett or Joan Hill until after Len's second interrogation, by which stage they'd already decided he was their man. Similarly, there was only Detective Sergeant McCarthy's say-so that the man known as the Yank had been cleared because he was in St. Peter's on the night of the murder. How seriously was his alibi tested? This man, after all, had been pestering Elsie and hassling Dot for information about her sister. He'd also been seen by Dot in Newcastle recently. In modern terminology, the Yank was a stalker. All of these omissions, along with a timeline that didn't prove much, had seen the jury believe there was plenty of reasonable doubt about Len's guilt. But he was right. Despite Len's acquittal, many people would have continued to believe that he had murdered Dot. While Dr. Allen's armchair forensic psychology hadn't been convincing at the inquest, a modern qualified counterpart in a similar case would almost certainly have told the jury that a murderer covers a victim's face because he has an emotional attachment to her. Could this have described Len? What wasn't in dispute during the inquest and the trial was that Dorothy was upset about something and worried. She was also avoiding the rear of the school, where Len had his quarters. Perhaps they had had a sexual relationship and she'd called it off. Coming home, he had found her as the prosecution alleged, sitting in the grass, had joined her, and then, angry at being rebuffed, had gone into a frenzy and murdered her. These days, of course, DNA samples collected from Dot's body, from the cigarette butt, and from Len's clothing would have almost certainly established his guilt or innocence beyond scientific doubt. In 1938, the jury would have considered these theories about Len having a relationship with Dot, and they'd rejected them, quite rightly, because there was so much doubt involved. In his interview with Smith's Weekly, Len had worried about the future. Would he get a job? What would he do with himself? What would people think? From the time of Dot's murder, November 1937, to Len's acquittal, April 1938, the Australian newspapers were of course filled with news of Adolf Hitler and his Nazis in Germany. And it'd be the Fuhrer and his minions who'd shape Len's immediate future in the same way they shaped the futures of hundreds of thousands of Australian men. Military records found via Fold3 at Ancestry.com.au show that on the 29th of October 1941, Len, who was by then working as a fitter and still living with the spillings in Merriweather, enlisted for service in the 2nd AIF, ready to fight Hitler's goons in Europe or the Middle East. At this time, question 12 on military attestation forms was, have you ever been convicted by a civil court? Surely, this gave Len a bit of a flashback. If things hadn't gone his way, he'd now be in a murderer's grave. But instead, Len could write, truthfully, no. He signed up and was ready to fight the Nazis. But the Japanese had other plans, and five weeks later, they bombed Pearl Harbor and invaded Singapore. Len Roberts served as an armourer in New Guinea from November 1943 to June 1944. In November 1944, in Southport, Queensland, Len, who was now 40, married a woman named Jean Duckett, who was then about 26. Len was discharged when the war ended. He'd served honourably and his record was free of any disciplinary infractions. Returning to civilian life, Len and Jean took a house in Maroubra. He was to list his occupation as fitter and then later as an engineer. 
Len and Jean lived near the beach until his death in 1973. As far as the record allows, Len was not implicated in any crime before or after the murder of Dot Everett. According to a 2014 article in the Newcastle Herald by Mike Scanlon and called Rohalian's Spirit Lives On, the Broughton School was abandoned by the end of the war and for a time was converted into flats for poor families. But the building was let to go to rack and ruin and was deserted by the 1950s, deteriorating and vandalised, its gardens overgrown. The story of Dot's murder did cling to the place, suiting its now ghost house appearance. As Mr Scanlon wrote, Quote, then, under the mantle of dark clouds, some rain and wind, in March 1968, the once historic home fell to the wrecker. Today, blocks of flats rise from where Broughton School once stood. The main apartment building bears the name Rohalian. As I said at the start of this podcast, it was firstly about the tragedy of Dorothy May Everett. Her murder wasn't solved and there's no report of her ghost prowling the hill in Newcastle, at least that I know of. But Dot's death had to haunt her loved ones. As detailed in part one, she was the eldest child of James and Isabella Everett, and she had seven younger siblings who all survived childhood at a time when this wasn't a given. Her terrible death and the absence of justice and closure had to stay with her family. Births, marriages, Christmases, graduations... Dot wasn't there for any of them. Her father James had another 20 years to wonder who'd murdered his daughter before he died in 1957. Dot's mother Isabella died another 15 years after that, meaning her purgatory had lasted 35 years. One of Dot's brothers died in 1978 at the comparatively young age of 66. Her sister Elsie died aged 69 in 1984 nearly half a century after Dot's murder. The other five Everett siblings lived well into their late 70s and their early 80s. None of the family ever got any answers. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the Forgotten Australia miniseries, The Vampire Murder. If you've thought the show worthwhile, I'd love it if you could leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. I'll be back soon with another new episode, but in the meantime, there are a dozen exclusive stories you can access as a Forgotten Australia supporter. As a supporter, you'll also get a shout-out and early ad-free access to every episode. To find out more, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and this link is also in your show notes. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.